This is an audio recording of Foresight's Molecular Machines panel, held at Vision Weekend in France. On the panel, we have Alexis Kobe, Eric Benson, Stefano Redon, Dean Thomas, and me, Alison Dittmann, discussing the future of molecular machines, all the way to molecular manufacturing, possible risks, and opportunities that arise from it. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to our molecular nanotechnology session. So let's start with a quote. Um, again, from Eric Drexler from Engines of Creation. Um, Imagine a world where the gadgets and goods that run our society are produced not in far-flung supply chains of industrial facilities, but in compact, even desktop-scale machines. So uh, I think the field of molecular machine is pretty broad. There are long-term goals of the molecular non-technology kind. And I'm really, really happy to discuss the whole breadth uh, today with a really, really wonderful panel. Thank you so, so much for joining Stefan. I think many of you may have seen a lot of him online. He has given a few wonderful presentations about his work. Larry over there. Hello. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and we have Eric Benson, uh, another Foresight fellow, Alexis Kobe, who's given absolutely fantastic presentations at workshops and virtually. And then we have a leak and clone over here. So thank you so much for coming, Dean. And you can bridge between uh, perhaps like, um, yeah, between, uh, between Lee and David as well. Okay, cool. First question, again, like in the last uh, panel, if you just want to bring people up to speed, what has happened in your field in the past five years? How has it changed? And what are you really excited about uh, going ahead? I begin? Okay, hi. Um... Well, I think it's been rather continuous. I don't think we've seen the quite the adoption of like ChatGPT in a, like nanoscience molecular manufacturing. We have some huge advances like in protein design, protein folding. I don't know exactly when the baseline is. Like, is it last year or a few years ago? Like, maybe you've heard about AlphaFold, so protein structure prediction. Uh, now, uh, the people at DeepMind. Uh, created a lab to uh, do drug design isomorphic labs and they're starting to do uh, the generalization of protein folding like protein folding and drug designing at the same time it's crazy so but i think it's coming up it's not like a step revolution last year it's like more coming up and i think we're gonna see uh, incredible things okay so uh, i work with dna nanostructures a bit of rna also um, I'm excited about things that are moving. I think it's coming a lot like kind of dynamic structures that can respond to things. Uh, and I'm also excited. So I worked, a lot of people worked before building kind of the biggest, most complex structures possible that are very static. But then I think it's very interesting to do very small things and things like PCR, bridge PCR, lamp amplification. They're essentially a form of DNA nanotechnology, but they're developed without kind of these insights of how the structure actually work. So I think there's a, lot of space for improvement by just like designing individual strands really carefully or, or evolutionarily selecting them to perform their jobs much better because it's really impressive that they can do what they can do with this very, very crude design. So that's, that's something I'm excited about. Okay. So I'm going to talk about um, the perspective from the field of computational protein design. Um, so as you all know, we have these incredible machines that evolved nature over billions of years. And they actually work, right? It's like the only examples we have, like in your bodies, you have proteins that transfer information, process energy and do these incredible things. And, um, I guess now it's the first time we actually have a window into, uh, designing those from scratch, right? So biology and computational protein design, um, now allows us to really manipulate this information in silico and design new machines from scratch. And so. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think it's a very uh, game-changing 
approach for molecular machine design. Yeah. Hi everyone. So my background, I spent about five years in the labs of Dave Lee and I enjoyed that time. Those past five years, I found a huge uh, change in, and growth of our designs coming from the labs of the Lee group and from Studarts group and things like this, the molecular machines that come out, which are not, they are certainly inspired by what biology creates, but they are much smaller in design, much simpler in function. They're trying to prove the principle. And we're seeing that every year, a new idea comes out, which is simpler, smaller, more effective. It's got a better method of correcting for errors. That field, I, I think on an organic chemistry perspective, which is my background, is still phenomenally driving forward. What I've moved towards now, as, as we were just talking about, is now I'm in the field of automation. And I want to see the idea of, in parallel, we've been so um, able to design machines that can automate the synthesis of these things. Can we bridge these gaps together? Can we have machines that now make machines in a very Drexler-esque fashion? How far can this go? Can we let it all be run automated in a fashion? That is effectively what biology is doing quite, quite on a daily basis. It's making uh, repairing modules. It's making ATP synthase. It's making further things down the line go. And, and I think there's a great benefit for that to inspire uh, ourselves and take inspiration from what biology has been doing. Yeah. I mean, I think we've seen a ton of progress in this field. I'm always just like blown away. I think really at how fast progress is happening. And I think also how undercover to the general public it's kind of occurring because I think the, the things that the field is able to do is like absolutely looks like magic to me on the outside as an amateur, but uh, I think it's progressed a lot, but do you think that we're getting any meaningfully closer to something like molecular manufacturing? Like, do you think A, it will ever be possible? B, do you think it will be possible by just continuing the progress that we're already doing on different, uh, on different approaches, or do we need a fund foundational breakthrough? What do you think about like the old long-term goals of molecular manufacturing? Feel free to also take it. Yeah. Maybe I won't begin. Uh, uh, yeah, I can go. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have conflicting opinions on this one. So having had to do it myself in my PhD and a bit of a postdoc, it's, it's challenging. You know, we, we sell a good dream. We want to get there as quick as possible, but we are limited. We don't have the error correction mechanisms on a, on a molecular level. Biology has these things. It, it evolved them and it made them perfect effectively. The, uh, the mechanism for that are tremendous. What we have in the lab is a system that is flawed. There are problems. We can't control every single atom as we wish to right now, but we will get there. It will just take time. We need to develop a new mechanism for those, for those systems. Instead of using carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen as our system, if we've got different elements in there, different functional groups that are completely abiological, we need to figure out what those correction mechanisms would be because we can't use what is already there. So it's a learning process. Um, it will take time, but I do definitely believe we'll get there. Um, just the, the random walk of how we get there in that time yeah. may be a little bit challenging. <laughs> yes, exactly so. Yeah, I guess the other way to go about that is to reuse natural machinery for manufacturing, right? So cells are little, um, um, you know, factories and we can just give it like some information, you know, DNA and ask the cell to create whatever uh, structure and machine we want to build. And that's been extremely successful uh, over the past decade. Um, and that's very scalable, right? Because organisms are all around, they can produce, you know, massive amounts of, of materials. And, um, and so you can design, you know, these, these things in the computer, then pass it to, to organisms for, uh, for fabrication. Um, so that's a very scalable and powerful approach for, um, fabrication. Yeah, I, I think I agree. It's this kind of tough questions. What do we want to make? And so seeing kind of Drexler vision with these uh, perfect atomic gears, like, can, can we make that? I don't know. Will we able, ever be able to, I don't know. And then like, why should we do it exactly like that? So I think you have to ask, what are you trying to make? And then work backwards from that. What, like, what should the design look like 
through the question of what could we most easily make? What, what can we manufacture that can have that performance that can do the task? And I don't know what the task is exactly that we're trying to do in the end, because like an, an enzyme is a molecular machine that performs kind of single atom chemistry and whatnot, but, uh, so maybe we should make synthetic enzymes, but for what? I, I, I'm not completely sure what we're trying to do. Yeah. So yeah, in my case, we approach that from a like computational point of view and we try to make platform that's agnostic. So we don't really know at all what's going to, who's going to win the race uh -huh. to make atomic precision uh, manufacturing. So there are like fantastic approaches from a protein design, a DNA nanotechnology, even AFM based. But it's pretty hard to, to see who's going to win. Like each has pros and cons. It's unclear if it's going to be a mix or one is going to solve everything. Like indeed, we don't need to make a, uh, to imitate a bird to have flying machines. So yeah, it's, it's still unclear if we're, to me, if we're going to have one day nano gears like uh, Drexler envisioned, but we could have like protein based gears uh, who are tetramers and uh, interact with other proteins and then are used as enzymes to make small molecules that go somewhere in the factory. Still unclear. It's very exciting though. It is exciting. At our workshop this year, we basically had like mostly people really kind of designing potential molecular machine, uh, molecular manufacturing architectures, somewhere like molecular 3D printers, then we had molecular Lego and so forth. And they did that really by also combining many different approaches. And they're not all, I guess, like exclusionary. Some of them are potentially complementary. It's still really early, you know, but at least a few of the architecture designs were really promising, I thought, and also quite of like, yeah, pretty cross-cutting across the different subfields. So that was really exciting. And I think to your point of like, what's the point? What do we want to make? Um, well, I guess like one point of it, it would be pretty general purpose, which is also, I guess, the problem because I think Adam Arbuston once pointed this out. He was like, for any specific application that you want to have or any specific problem that you want to solve, there's always a different way to do it rather than the very hard molecular manufacturing route. So that's why oftentimes it makes more sense to actually do it the quick way. But then, you know, we have these like more perhaps general purpose tools kind of like that are left, uh, left in the quicksand. But with that kind of like caveat aside, like are there specific applications or fields that you think that will be and most impacted by the stuff that you're working on in the future? Like, is it mostly health? Is it material science? Is it uh, energy? What, what, which fields do you think will be massively influenced by the stuff that you're working on? Let's say perhaps in the next five to 10 years. Yeah, I'll give that a good go. Uh, I think smart materials for artificial mech machines are the real place to be. I think the biological mech machines will have a swathe of uses in health because they are already ready to go into the body and they already got a home there that they can live in. What we're more interested in is just interesting materials that can adapt to different stimuli. They could change different properties, detections. Um, I think there's already a few examples of those already where if they are detecting small bits of gas, these machines can switch stimuli, switch positions and give you a really dramatic response to that, even at the tiniest amount of, of the analyte that it wants to detect. Um, they're really cute applications, really interesting. It's just how you get them from being published on a, in a nice scientific journal somewhere to actually being applied. That I think is where we've got a big disconnect right now. And it's one of the, maybe a, a spoiler for my real politic tomorrow. Of, I just don't know how we get past that. We seem to just get to the point of publishing and go, look at this really cool thing right now. Who takes on? If it was that amazing, why is it not in our shoes, in our watches? Is it, why is it not there? And there's just something that we're still waiting on, I think, for that bit to occur. I don't know if anyone agrees. Yeah. So, um, you know, just as far as like, um, protein design is concerned, I think that can really impact all of biotech, right? Because it's the first time we have a real, uh, information technological window, right? Into, into biology. So we can really manipulate biological information in the computer. 
and create new molecules from scratch. And, and that can be applied for any kind of like technological applications, I think, in, in biology. Okay, yeah. So uh, with DNA nanotechnology, I'm excited about, about making really small and simple structures that can uh, that we can use to, to study biomedical questions. So I'm interested in mapping transcriptomics right now and uh, possibly, I'm also interested in diagnostics and like possibly therapies, DNA-based therapies. I think it's an interesting approach. <laughs> so I would say all of them. <laughs> of course. No, I'm super optimistic. But so what we're seeing already and that's fascinating is that you can... Uh, like some people have done this and it works. You, you take a graphene sheet. So just flat surface of carbon atoms, you put a linker and then you attach an antibody to that. And the antibody is specific of a spike protein. And so, so and you put a current that goes in the graphene sheet and the resistance of the graphene sheet is changed depending on whether the spike is attached to the antibody. And so you, you make a very sensitive nano sensor. And so we are already seeing a few, so it's still like uh, startups that are getting funding and have made proof of concept and uh, want to make more, to get more funding to, to do it at scale, but it works. And, and that's super impressive. That's fascinating. And it's, it's like this mix of material science, biology, electronics, and that's really exciting. Yeah. Oh, well, so what do you think then is, you know, I mean, you already touched on this a little bit, but to foreshadow some of the things, you know, that we can also talk at length more tomorrow, but I think it's useful to name it. What do you think has been, you know, the problem really with like this research, not advancing perhaps as fast as people thought back then, right? Um, I think this is really one where people were so ambitious uh, about this field so long ago, right? At least within Foresight, they, they truly were. And, you know, there's a bunch of different factors that I could name, but I first want to hear from you guys, like, what do you think, you know, has kind of like gone wrong or like what what do you think like you know we could improve in terms of a more like either social discourse or funding structures um you, you name it yeah that's a really great point and i would like to touch on a previous one as well to answer that um nothing has necessarily gone wrong it's just parts of academia and it's that people don't share their ideas they don't collaborate with those ideas very much we have different pis for love or hate them and they have their own styles of doing things and some of them may have the best machinery in the world, but they don't collaborate very much mm -hmm. with another team. So we end up just having these channels and it's like trying to use a screwdriver to hammer in a nail, you know, like just because that was our way of building it. That is the one thing that can be overcome. If people start collaborating and using these different components together, you end up with a Swiss army knife. It's now got all the different tools in one machine that can solve the that problem and that problem. And then you become quite interesting where another problem, which will bring my bias in, in my current role, Organic synthesis is not easy. <laughs> Making these compounds on a 10, 12 step scale is never going to be easy. It's never going to be to convert, uh, to convert that to an industrial scale, to make loads of it. And then there's always the little secrets of organic synthesis. One group made it this way. They didn't tell you the full thing in the SI. The SI is not completely descriptive. The lab notebook may not be completely detailed. There may be little gaps here and there. How do we solve that problem? And that's uh, an area which I was really interested in maybe chat with you a bit later about. We're trying to investigate now these ideas of take all of those synthetic procedures that you have, convert them into some standardized code that is run on our machines, actual big fume hood scale machines. Let the machine do that bit. Let it leave no area for um, uh, translation errors or something that a human might read that slightly differently when you added 10 times this. Was it nine times or 11 times? No, just let it be a computer written code that will make you that molecule exactly as it was and then send that file to another person in Canada, whoever they can make the same molecule, exactly the same yield, exactly the same amount and purity. There was no option. There's no opportunity for a miscommunication 
or a little bit of something else. And then we start letting machines go between labs. Directly. The computing paradigm, I guess. There you go. I may have given it away. <laughs> um, yeah, so I very much agree with that. And I guess um, I think there are, you know, fundamental limits to fabrication that we maybe not always, you know, talk about. So I think there's no like Swiss army knife for like fabrication for like, you know, everything. Um, but I think chemistry is very efficient at like making, you know, small molecules to scale. Right. I'm, I'm not sure, you know, I'm, I'm quite skeptical of like scaling that to like machines are like thousands and tens of thousands of atoms just because, you know, I've done chemistry before and there's like yield to any reaction. And so that imposes physical limits on what we can manufacture. Um, um, although it's very powerful for like specific applications and in biology on the other, on the other side is like, you know, it's, 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 it's very scalable. It's, it's, it's very powerful, but so it's very soft, right? So, so there's other, um, disadvantage to that. Uh, but so I think we'll have to be very specific about what we want to build for what application with what methods. And there will be like, you know, um, like a, like a very large toolbox of, of different uh, approaches for, um, creating nano machines. Yeah. And I always said like, you have to make the tools, make the tools. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I'm going to do the standard thing. I'm going to complain about funding incentives and, Great. um, bring it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like even a long grant, it's like kind of a five-year horizon. And then you sort of have to say what you think you will make. And then if you're smart, you're always going to choose a low risk track where at least if it kind of fails, you get something out of it. And, and I don't think anyone wants that for like everyone, thousands of scientists just taking low risk approaches everywhere. So I think, uh, for more progress, I, I think, uh, I mean, we need to fund people longer with, uh, with more support and m more allow people to fail and, and try difficult things. And, uh, yeah, I mean, collaboration is also, it's kind of impossible. It's impossible to collaborate with other scientists because you have meetings, you agree to things, and then you meet again three months later and like one team didn't do what they agreed to. And then it's like, no, there's no way to push them. And so it's, so yeah, you can't, yeah. You can't live with collaborators and you can't live without collaborators. It's very difficult, uh, to do science, uh, for, for big questions. And then, I mean, I think incentives is very tricky. We talk about what can we make? How should we make it? Uh, but, but the risk is even then we sort of creating roadmaps and we're forcing people to, uh, to, to think in certain ways and, and then kind of reduce risk. And yeah, it's, it's a really difficult problem to solve. Even if you have a lot of problem, uh, no, a lot of money. I'm not sure how to structure a grant program to get people to, to do the right things. Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's mostly human nature. Uh, it might be physics, maybe things are not possible, uh, but it might be also human nature. Like, uh, uh, I teach computer science and we force students to do projects in groups of at least 10 people to show them that programming is not the most difficult part. It's like organization, uh, collaboration, communication, deciding what to do, uh, the emergence of tech leaders besides uh, actual uh, supposed leaders. So it's uh, human nature, maybe. Wow, that would be a big one to solve, you guys. Well, I think, you know, uh, also the point that you brought up is quite interesting of like, you know, the, I mean, you know, the things being downstream of funding, you know, because, but I mean, if you actually want people to work on something like molecular manufacturing, you probably need an outside organization, something like an Altus Labs. And, you know, I, I mean, we all know Adam Marblestone with the FRO efforts, like focus research organizations, thinking of like a different type of institute that would bring people together from different academic labs, either as advisors or like full-time 
to actually kind of like combine their methods into something that is more outrageous uh, and uh, similarly or like as outrageous as molecular manufacturing. And so that would definitely be something, but then you also need to signal to them that that's funding is sustainable. You know, if people are going to leave their tenure track positions, how is that going to work? Unless you actually can signal to them that this, this is now a new thing that they can do. Um, and then, you know, obviously I think the, all the things that you mentioned about like, uh, you know, uh, incremental research being like a thing that people just like want to see also to get uh, their citation scores up and so forth is, is a big one. And we're going to dive into a lot of that uh, tomorrow as well. I just want to know if there's any questions from the panel before we're going to hit a few of the manifold ones. Questions, comments. Yeah, you go and then we we'll go over to you. Yeah, so in how much do you think that uh, greater access to space and uh, doing these things in a graphically free environment will play a role in working? My gut feeling to that is relatively little. Uh, for these artificial molecular machines we have, they are playing with Brownian motion. They're being bombarded by molecules all the time. The gravity of the effect is not too much if, if I'd say that by gut. Um, so yeah, that'd be my one. That's what we have to deal with. Enzymes and other biological systems have controlled that problem in some respect by being such large molecules that can absorb those tiny bombardments and they are compartmentalized and they are rigid structures that can be controlled in other ways with our small ones, which are maybe you know, 100 carbon units long at most, they're getting thrown around. <laughs> it's just a constant bombardment down there and it's crazy. So to try and get directional motion, to try and ratchet that work and get something useful out of a stimuli, like I sprinkled some energy in there and can you now turn the gear cogs 10 times? There's a thousand ways it could go wrong. <laughs> so I don't know if, if gravity necessarily is going to be much of an effect on that one. Oh, I was just going to ask, I, I don't know, I, I don't Yes, um, that's been coming out of our labs a few times. They are not complete packages, but they certainly can make certain uh, non-natural protein sequences, or maybe that's a bit of an stretch, maybe six or seven together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have these. Um, I can send you a few of them, but they are quite well spread from our lab or from my old lab. They were just termed synthesizers. They could be anything. They could make helicenes and have them uh, come off this track. Then you could isomerize them late and form this really beautiful structure at the end of it. Um, you can change whatever that R group is on these motifs. It could be any application you wish for. Uh, so that is already a developed thing, but bear that in mind. They are smaller. They can only do three, four, five units. You bought the idea then is that you have two, three, four of those machines in solution and they work cooperatively. So they're all going down their track, making their five um, oligomer units. And then those five join up together after the end of that and make a 25 one. And then you could have lots of them working in solution. But that's really hard. <laughs> like so many things could go wrong there. Instead of having A, B, C, D, E, you could have A, D, E, F. It's just which order does it come into? And that's a problem that we're fighting right now. And it's something biology has succeeded in doing, but it's also biologically driven. Well, I guess like, I'm not sure exactly what you're asking, but like, if you asking, like, can we make a machine that like reads a tape essentially, and then, you know, assembles, um, um, you know, like molecules by reading the information from that tape, um, which is what ribosomes are, uh, it's extremely hard. <laughs> Right. But uh, people are working on that. Yeah, absolutely. And that would be game changing. We have 
Sorry, the COVID sensor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the spike, spike protein. So is it a COVID test? Yes, it's a COVID test. So the company is called Graphheal, like G A R G R A P H H E A L, and it's a former physicists who were working on nanosensing technologies, and they uh, created a startup, Graphil, that does that. So it's like a COVID test. And the thing is that since it's current-based, you connect that to a smartphone and you have an app, uh, like Bluetooth uh, sensor, and you check whether uh, a sample contains spike proteins or not. It's like a mix between uh, biology and electronics, material science. I think it's fantastic. Uh, let's maybe go through a few of the manifold questions uh, and then we'll see how we close it out. So again, another reminder, please, please, please uh, get our manifold, start predicting and add your own questions. Uh, first one is we should focus more on this area for molecular manufacturing, DNA nanotech, protein spider approaches, SCM, AFM, or combining a subset of these approaches into more general architectures, which got the most votes. Uh, do you guys disagree? Disagree? Do you agree? Disagree? Yeah, I think I voted for that one already. Uh, yeah, I think it has to be all of them. Everything we choose to do is inspired by nature. We're, we're constantly scrolling through what biology or the latest bio fields and saying, that is an amazing machine. How can I simplify that? What, what's the periphery that I can cut away to allow me to make it? As you said, we can't go above, you know, at a certain size limit. It's just not physically possible in a lab to make bioorganic chemists. It's just going to take you too long and be a waste of resources. But if you can make it in a biological setting or can adapt it somehow, you're, you're onto a winner with that one. Um, and I'm sure there's, there's uh, inspirations you can get reverse-wise from the small molecule machines that can apply to the big ones as well, maybe. Yeah, I think I totally agree. Um, and I would say like in the short term, there's no need to like replicate billions of years of like evolution, right? We can we have this thing that works very well to print molecule at the atomic scale. So let's use it, I would say. Yeah, no, no, I agree. But then at the same time, as Stefan said, you know, there's, uh, there's, we can build machines that fly without wings and obviously we can build planes that fly faster than any animal and cars drive faster than any animal. And, and uh, like, I guess protein designs, they're very, anything that's in nature is like incredibly constrained under the conditions that it, it can be assembled. Like it needs to fold, con fold transcriptionally somehow, and it has to work in this kind of aqueous solution. So there must be like a lot of space of things that that is better, but could never be assembled in a cell. So I think it's interesting to pursue also. Yeah. I just want to add so so that's a very good point. And I think, so we can like learn from biology, use the principles, but go completely synthetic. Right. So for example, I mean, the idea of like using a polymer at folds is extremely powerful, right? Because then you can have, you can precisely position atoms in 3d, um, like incredible accuracy. And that's the reason why nature uses that, right? Like nature doesn't really like print you know, atoms one at a time, that doesn't really make sense, right? Like the folding process is really powerful again. So we could make polymers that fold uh, that are not uh, based on biological building blocks, for example. So th there's a lot of things we can learn from nature and, and do um, de novo. 
Cool. Okay. Uh, well, uh, let's maybe put on a very different head. Um, you know, people have been excited about molecular nanotechnology, but also worried about the risks uh, and, you know, for some better or worse, <laughs> different scenarios. Um, but I think that has definitely been one, you know, I think we all remember, I mean, I don't remember when it was published, but the Bill Joyce article, Why the Future Doesn't Need Us on Grey Guru. And then, you know, that be becoming a big spook. And then the Smalley Drexler, the Drexler Smalley debate on like, is it even possible to do this? So I think there's there's just been a lot of like, individual bits that have been holding the few back to some extent, but I'm like curious if like, you know, if you think that we should be already thinking ahead in terms of the risks that some of the molecular non-technologies that you're developing uh, could be presenting. And if so, if there's one that you think we should be particularly worried about, there's three of them, which is one like democratization of weaponizable technology and potential conflict. Um, you know, this probably includes also like potential, you know, bio or like a chemical risk or economic and societal disruptions of uh, cheap production. And then the Grey Goose scenario has almost got no vote. So at least that's <laughs> that, that's pretty good. Uh, is there anything that you think we should be addressing already up front where we can have maybe a differential technology development approach for like building uh, safety and security enhancing technologies first? Or Yeah, I think I, I lean towards more the kind of safety aspects, not from my own field, because I think we're a little bit away from, <laughs> I don't think we're going to be causing any trouble, anyone any trouble anytime soon. But there's so many advances that are being made in, in the biological molecular machine world and they are tremendously powerful and they could be applied with people with bad motives in other ways. I'm not saying they are, but you can see the potential for that happening because because it's so already amazingly good at its job and you can change genes, you can splice and edit them and do whatever you like. It's just it's a wonderful tool in the right hands and maybe that could be an issue one day. Yeah, it's a huge problem and people are very well aware of it. Yeah. Right. So and um actually so two weeks ago uh, at the Institute for Protein Design in Seattle, we hosted like, um, you know, like bioterrorism, um, workshop because, um, you know, like, so protein design traditionally has been, you know, pretty inefficient and pretty hard, like so very expert. Right. And, uh, for the past two years now with machine learning, you can make, you can design of like much better success rate efficiency. And it's, it's very easy now. You can just like go on GitHub, get the code and design proteins in your garage. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a huge problem. And, um, and so we don't really have solutions so far, um, apart from just simply controlling gene synthesis, because it's kind of like the Achilles of like, you know, bioterrorism right now. Um, but we're starting to think about, you know, not raising models anymore, um, because, because it's just, it's getting too powerful. Um, and so in the wrong hands, it could be very, very dangerous. I agree. That's <laughs> <laughs> Same. Double <laughs> okay. plus one. All right. Well, then I guess we only have three more minutes left. Uh, is there another question? I think you had one earlier. Why don't you? Yeah, no, I'm taking the question with the last question. You may. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but this uh, like a security question, do you think that it is uh, conceivable that, uh, well, things actually do get that chaotic and the only way to stop is more like computer science and computer security approach where you patch things and that there's a healthcare system that allows us to roll out, um, roll out fixes for emerging biosecurity threats to the patient. Is that doable? Uh, I mean, I really like this analogy. And yes, I fear we might uh, be someday in some kind of cyberpunk world where we patch ourselves with a CRISPR, uh, CRISPR-like technology or molecular machines. And yes, so uh, that might be a fight. That might be in a long time, though. So are you suggesting that like someone will like make a virus in the garage, <laughs> then you just like release a vaccine essentially on the fly? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's a solution, I guess. It's pretty terrifying. 
<laughs> but your proposal was then, oh, that's come out in the news. You can just go to the local healthcare center and like, oh, this is the, this is the antivirus. You just download it, stick it on your arm, get going, see you later, high five. Uh, yeah, that sounds amazing. Uh, I'm all for that. That's scary. Uh, yeah. And then, like I said, the, op- the opportunities for that are, are endless. It could be anything. It could be, you know, going crazy and you're watching the matrix and you're downloading Kung Fu, you just put it into your arm and like, I can now fight this disease. I don't have this anymore. We kind of already have a little bit of that when you go and get a vaccine for something else. So we have that bit, how it expands and flourishes onwards. Yeah. It could be a very exciting future. But maybe those like rapid deployment safety machines become a new source of bioterrorism mm. because it makes it easier to make these proteins and genes locally. So mm. I I guess it's always an offense-defense race to some extent, and I, I don't know if some people are probably familiar also with Kevin Esfeld's work um, um, and security and A and so forth at, at MIT, and I think he's like trying to kind of like I guess stop it more at the source. So I guess we I think we need all of the different approaches. You know, once it's out there, like let's let's find it. Maybe if we can uh, prevent it from getting anywhere, that would also be useful. Um, okay, we almost have no time left. One minute. So I really would love for you guys to tell us. In a second, we're going to start the speaker meeting. Greet. What is a thing that you're really burning for that uh, you think you really, really want to discuss with people? Something perhaps like, um, you know, that is a uh, field that you think is undervalued, not discussed enough, um, something that they can really um, deep dive with you on. Do you want me to go first? Um, your time is valuable. Automate everything. Don't do it manually anymore. That's my, my dream. I, I work on that as much as possible. I was so tired of doing the organic chemistry back to back to back every single day. It's really boring, but you can automate it all. It's okay. So what problems do you have that you want to try and automate? Cause we'll try and automate it for you. That's what I want to talk about. Uh, we just need more GPUs. I think that's the, <laughs> um, I mean, it's just really come to a point where like we can give enough sampling, we can solve any problem uh, in the field. So, uh, we just need more compute power. Um, yeah, it's pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Maybe this is not my main point, but I was thinking in the last talk that I'm a little bit pessimistic about standardizing biodata actually, because it might be kind of, I mean, the problem is we always want to innovate and we want to have better sequencers and better microscopes and anything. And then, and then if you, you're incentivizing standardization, kind of incentivizing using the same, same things again. Uh, and then. Uh, I guess it's problematic. And since it's also, you're always going to have people come in and tweak the machine because they're going to do something different. Then the standard's going to break apart. Then. But that's probably not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about, uh, I guess, DNA and an evolution I'm interested in. So, uh, so I, I, I think in the future, we're going to be uh, surrounded by AIs, agents. Uh, we're going to see hybrid teams everywhere doing research, doing stuff. And we have to prepare for that. So, and I, I, I think, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if there is a new standard that's going to evolve besides English. Like, I think that's going to be the, like the, I mean, I'm not the first to, to say that, but that's going to be the programming language, English, or just like French or German. And uh, we have to prepare for that. So, uh, yeah, I'd like to discuss that too. Well, then uh, I will be getting the biotech speakers into the room that um, we're uh, probably out having uh, a coffee.